Hi, this is Rob Long, one of the founders of Ricochet.com. The podcast you're about to listen to is a production of Ricochet.com, the home of center-right conversation about politics and culture on the web. If you've been listening to these podcasts for a while, you've probably heard about our site. Maybe you've even visited once or twice. Well, now I'm about to make you a special offer to join our growing community of civil and clever conversationalists and interact with contributors such as myself and Peter Robinson, John Yu, Pat Sajak, Mark and Molly Hemingway, Mona Charon, Jane Nordlinger, Paul Ray, James Lilix, Troy Senek, James Pathakoukas, Judith Levy, Arthur Davis, James Dellingpole, and many, many more. I know I'm leaving somebody out, but conservatives are very polite and they won't complain. Now, in addition, you can create your own post on our vibrant and lively and widely read in the Corridors of Power member feed on any topic you like, culture, politics, sports, food, you name it. Interact with like-minded conservatives from around the country and across the world. Listen to our podcast being recorded live and live chat with your fellow members and even attend in-person meetups across the country. And it's quite simply the best community on the web and the most fun you can have with a keyboard. And trust me, this is a community getting more influential every day. So join Ricochet today and get a free 30-day membership. Go to ricochet.com slash offer now. That's ricochet.com slash offer and claim your free 30-day membership on me. And now on with the podcast, and I'll see you in the comments on Ricochet. As I look around this room, at least among the elected officials, I may be the only damn Republican here, uh, but that's okay. That's all right. Welcome to the Ricochet podcast, Glop. Culture. This is your pseudo host, John Podhoritz, and with me, as always, in Washington, D.C., Jonah Goldberg. What, what? <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. And, and you couldn't in, even get through it without laughing. In, uh, in Venice, uh, California, Rob Long. Hi, Rob. Hi, John. How are you? Hi, Jonah. What, yo, what? Yo, how's it going? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go street today, I think. No, he's got the cred. He certainly got the cred. Totally, it's true. It's true. The problem is that his street is in the villages. The villages. Well, considering anyway, uh, uh, considering I I read a tweet of Jonah's yesterday. I think it was yesterday or the day before. Was the uh, sitting in my backyard smoking cigar, reading Burke. Yeah, real street cred there, Jonah. Yeah, very very street cred. (laughs) This podcast is brought to you by Encounter Books and their broadside series. This week's featured title. The Cure for Obamacare by Sally Pipes. Go to EncounterBooks.com slash Ricochet for 15% off the list price. We'll talk more about it in a, minute. In a few minutes. Wait a minute. The, the title is The Cure for Obamacare? The Cure for Obamacare Sally by Pipes noted – Cure Obamacare? Rhino! Well, speaking of Rhino, Rob, thank you very much for that transition to the issue of the week for many of us, which is the – uh, supposed civil war within the uh, GOP and the conservative movement over the question of the strategy that seems to have been devised and redevised and toyed with and played with about uh, supposedly trying to defund Obamacare through the vehicle of the continuing budget resolution, which is the most boring sentence I've ever spoken, but what's going on is not boring at all, and I'm wondering, Jonah, can you uh, maybe, uh, as one of the funniest writers on this topic, 
illuminate uh, and elucidate for our listeners just what exactly is going on uh, in the strategic game that's going on in D.C. this week? Okay, just for the sake of our listeners, you guys should know that before we went live, uh, John was dazzling us with a lot of insidery <laughs> technical jargon oh, yeah. for like the terms for things, queuing things up, top oh, of the hour, all that kind of stuff. The bottom of and, the hour, take it from the top, yeah. <laughs> and just, just so you know, the sort of the people in the know who really use the technical jargon in this business call what John just did passing the big bag of crap to Jonah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now I have to explain all of this stuff. I um, was worried that I spoke too much on the last podcast. That's I the see. actual okay. truth. So I'm trying to be that. more uh, res- respectful. I appreciate that. Okay, really? fair enough. Um, the speak fine. Yeah. Um, uh, what's going on is that Ted Cruz mounted a big grassroots national movement, to use his terms for it, to defund Obamacare. Um, and at, the whole logic of it was, was to berate the House into passing a continuing resolution, basically a budget, um, that said we'll fund the entire government except for Obamacare. And uh, Cruz and Mike Lee, Republican senator from Utah, went around saying that it's really just that simple. If we could just get the Republicans to get it to the Senate, then the Senate, with just 41 votes, um, will be able to get rid of Obamacare. And they, they made it sound like these magic beans will really work. And lo and behold, the, the House, which I know on good authority, was laughing its butt off <laughs> in many respects um, because they let Ted Cruz catch the car. Um, and now he doesn't know what to do with it. They passed this thing into the house and Ted Cruz in a got got caught basically admitting that he didn't have the votes and there was nothing he could do he he sort of revised that and now they're taking up this fight in the senate that can only work if among other things and John can correct me if I've left anything out uh can only work if uh either first of all Harry Reid has to agree to a 60 vote minimum um, to pass this this existing budget, if he doesn't do that, um, if he does, if he agrees to do that, which would require some, you know, having member some member of his family locked in a trunk somewhere, um, they would then have to get unanimous consent from all 100 senators, including the socialist senator from Vermont, the uh, you know Chuck Schumer, uh, Barbara Boxer, America's smartest senator and uh, Dick Durbin and a host of others to all agree to something that they think would be against their interests and, and good for the Republican Party, which they're known to do all of the time. Um, if they can't do that, then the Republicans have to vote, um, have to move as a party to uh, filibuster their own bill that calls for defunding Obamacare on the grounds that it, that is the only way to stop them from funding Obamacare, which is a really easy bumper sticker kind of thing to explain to people on cable television. <laughs> you know and so this is it's just even crazy. worse. This is it's just crazy. crazy. This is it's just crazy enough that. to work. This is just <laughs> crazy <laughs> enough to work. It's even right, so John, worse. What did I leave out? It's even worse than you described because what <laughs> happened was, as I understand it, that Ted Cruz did not understand the rules of the Senate, and he believed 
that this bill coming from the House would require, as is true of most uh, Senate legislation, would require 60 votes to do what's called cloture, closing debate. Because in the Senate, debate is um, unconditional and never ends until there is a vote of a three-fifths majority to close the debate and then it can go to a vote. That is true in all aspects of the Senate except for budget resolutions, which only require 51, precisely in order to prevent this kind of grandstanding on budget matters, because the idea is if you don't fund the government, then everything will shut down. Cruz, not having understood this, was caught flat-footed, and he then announced that what, what the Senate needed to do was to vote down the House bill that he had insisted three days earlier the House vote for. That's just gonna, that just, is I, just crazy enough to work. I, I have I have I have some something I need to interject here because my heart is actually racing. While John was explaining the sixty votes for cloture mistake with with all the gravity it deserved, I'm sitting in my office at the American Enterprise Institute on the tenth floor. You know, so like a thousand feet up or something like that, or a hundred feet up, um, and right as John said, would need sixty votes for closure. A huge bundle of ropes smashed into the outside window of my office. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they're cleaning. I didn't know what it was. I thought it was like they're coming to get the rhinos, Jonah. I first thought it was a human body, and it had that exact sort of feeling without the comedy, like from Airplane, when Lloyd Bridges is saying, you know. It's going to take a heck of a pilot to land that bird, and then a spear comes out of nowhere and hits the wall. Yeah, um, it, was, it was all very strange, and it kind of freaked me out. So anyway, I just thought I'd throw that in there. Fair enough. I mean, I mean, <laughs> this is the key—the key to understanding. There are two aspects of politics, obviously. One is ideas and principle, and that, that is the most important aspect of politics. But politics is, you know, is a science as well as an art. It is a it is a living, breathing, working mechanism as well as it is. Okay. The vehicle for, and the issue that has gotten a lot of people hung up on what's happened over the last week is that uh, Ted Cruz doesn't know what he is doing. The senator from Texas, a freshman, understandable. The Senate is a very complicated, weird body with incredibly strange, arcane rules that people spend 20, 30 years learning how to master. That was the case with Robert Byrd, the uh, famous master procedure, Bob Dole, famous master procedure, and now Harry Reid, famous master procedure. And and Cruz got in over his head, told the House to do something to help him that right. it turned out hurt him, uh, and having forced this on the House is now demanding that his fellow Republicans vote against the bill that he insisted be passed. That is crazy, in my view. And it is irresponsible, and it's reckless, and it's bizarre behavior. Um, okay. See here, I agree with all that. I, I just think it's the problem's even more fundamental, which is that there's a a a, a, a strain of conservative Republicans, um, uh, who with whom I, I agree with a lot, who seem to be unable to accept the fact that we do not control the Senate, and that a bunch of tweets and and opinion polls, which are interesting. Do not create a political movement. And the, here's how we know that. Because Obamacare was passed. It was the, it's the law passed. It didn't get repealed. It hasn't been repealed. 
it was passed. And it still is the law because Barack Obama is still president and the Democrats still control the Senate. And what, what, what bugs me is that half of those people I know complaining, shouting that Ted Cruz is right, that we have to do this, make, make this bizarre, completely quixotic, uh, a fatal stand are the same ones who said we need you know, fewer rhinos in the Senate. They were sort of uh, – many of the barricades were Christine O'Donnell. The reason we can't do that is because we do not have the Senate. If we have these sort of purity laws in the Republican Party, we are going to get precisely nowhere. And it's this weird kind of childishness to suggest that, no, no, if we, if, we, if we really hold our breath, the people are with us. The people are not with us. I don't care what opinion polls say. They voted for Barack Obama. That's how you win. That's how you get to control the debate. That's how you get to set policy. You get to be elected into office. It just seems bananas that we're still having this conversation. Well, it's, it's more – I think it, it goes to a deeper – interesting route than that because of course you know one of the things that's gone on over the last 20 years is what some political scientists have called the great sort which is that used to be that the body politic across the country was very um interwoven you know states had a lot of democrats and a lot of republicans there were nominally a lot more democrats than there were republicans but that meant that democrats were a lot more republican leaning than their membership of their party might indicate or a lot more conservative um and so you had the phenomenon where politicians particularly senators tended to be from the center because they needed to take some stuff from the right yeah. some stuff from the left and they they were closer to the center they but were that's they, not what they, but now. nobody, but nobody's deciding that now. I mean, that's not what's going on now. No, people are people who are in favor of this sort of Ted Cruz gambit are saying you don't understand. We're creating a movement. Everyone's for us. No right. one is for you. No, that's, but here's and my we, point. You know, no one's for you is because you you do not control the house not, or the, the senate. You don't control the senate or the White House. But that's that how you not, know. But it's not true that no one is for them, because what what's happened is that Republican politicians are elected by vastly more Republican electorates than was the case 20 years ago. And Democratic politicians are elected by vastly more Democratic electorates than was the case 20 years ago. The parties have moved closer to their you know, ideological bases. Yes, but, but at some time... Now, what's yeah. happened is... So the result is, if you're Ted Cruz, your universe, the universe of people that you talk to who voted for you and all this in the state of Texas is far more conservative than the nation as a whole. Uh, voters in Republican House districts, voters in Republican Senate districts are far more conservative than, than the you know, national electorate is. Yes, just as that doesn't okay. change yeah, I mean, the, the, the House members were voted to get rid of Obama. I'm not, huh? House members, I mean, I think John's right. House members can claim just as much Democratic legitimacy for their yes. agenda – as as the White House hand, White House says we won an election. The House guys say we won an election. The House guys say we won, trying to get, promising to try to do everything we can to get rid of Obamacare, and that is a they're being they're fulfilling their their obligations. I got no problem with them trying to well, do it. Yeah. I just have problems with their tactics. Well, that that's the whole point. So what we have here is I think everybody we're all against you and I and Jonah and Rob and. You know, almost everybody who now goes under the rubric of Republican or conservative opposes Obamacare and wants it, would w wish that it was not passed and want it to be repealed and replaced in the, you know, in the best possible universe, right? 
So it all comes down to a question of tactics. One of the things that has happened now is that is that it is not just that Ted Cruz says he has a strategy to defund Obamacare. It is that if you do not agree with his strategy to defund Obamacare, you are ideologically impure. You are, in fact, a supporter of Obamacare implicitly. If you do not go with his idiotic strategy that has no chance of succeeding. Or if you call it idiotic, but even culturally, if you call it idiotic, you're some kind of establishment rhino, right? Right. No, exactly. Which is preposterous because it's Because <laughs> I am, and I'm idiotic, telling you, you're not. But it's, <laughs> but it's, it's idiotic only in the sense that it, it makes no – he didn't have a strategy. There is no strategy. The strategy is that, as Jonah sort of indicated, you hold firm and somehow magically 14 – Democrats are going to change their vote to help you in the Senate because it's fifty four forty six, as far as I know, right? It's so popular, right? So magically, by holding firm and and Obamacare is unpopular, this will change the vote. This will cause Democrats to bend and fold and repeal uh, the single most important piece of legislation passed by Democrats right. in the last 50 years. So, so can I make a larger point, though? That's this, crazy. Yes, but can I make a larger point? This, this seems to be a problem in contempor- even in contemporary culture and in contemporary politics. The, the delusion that because there, you have Fox News and there are blogs and tweets, that there's a national movement for something, that there's this great public outcry for something. And so there are people who are in favor of this crackpot scheme who point to the national movement to repeal Obamacare, which does not exist yet. And Ted well, Cruz seems to think that if he creates exist. Kind of movement, where? It, it where? does exist. There, it, there is a national movement. Really? It just doesn't have – it doesn't was have Was it in the one year ago uh, sweeping victory of Barack no, Obama? The, uh, no. No, but look, 47, 48 percent of the public is not nothing. It's just not enough to do – to do to do this very large thing that they want to do, and okay, they don't right. structurally or tactically have the capacity yeah. to right, do that's it. What I mean, and I mean there's either, no, they do not have the momentum, right. political momentum, and but, you cannot create it from appearances on Fox News or tweets. Right. That's well, because, not just Fox, I mean, I, like I, every time I listen to Ted Cruz talk, right, he always says, "Everywhere I go around the country, everywhere I go in Texas, um, I, I talk to these audiences that." that want to get rid of Obamacare. And this is the problem. It reminds me of a line that I've heard attributed to Richard Nixon, and I, I've just never been able to confirm it, but I'll use it anyway. Nixon was once asked if there was if, – if he believed in overpopulation. And he said, obviously, there's overpopulation. Everywhere I go, I see huge crowds. <laughs> and you know, maybe it's because you're president of the United States. You see a lot of big crowds. Um, maybe if it's because you're only speaking to Tea Party groups and uh, – uh, and Republican base groups and and conservative movement groups everywhere that, that every audience you talk to doesn't like Obamacare and I, I think John is right that there is a national movement but it is not it is not you know Barack Obama could, you could say had a national movement too and it wasn't enough to do anything for his legislative agenda in his second term um, having a movement isn't enough and I don't you know so I mean there are millions and millions of people who want to get rid of Obamacare. Um, but that doesn't translate into getting rid of Obamacare. It's just not the way the system was set up. And it's amazing how, to me, how so many conservatives who love our constitutional order want to get back to the Constitution 
at the same time have this idea that if we could just get the mobs big enough, we will force right. the Senate to reflect the popular will, which is not what the Senate was designed to do. That's right. Well, not, I mean, I think we're saying the same yeah. thing. I, I, I guess what I'm talking about is a, a bigger delusional quality to all of this movement, which is that uh, everything I watch and read and hear and listen to uh, proves that the, 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 the country is with us and the country's not. And people continually point to polls rather than the only one that matters, which is that Barack Obama's reelected and that the Democrats still control the Senate. And that, that the simple tactical the, – the, the simplicity of the tactics in front of us should be, should be uh, uh, almost undeniable. Get the Senate back and then work your will as a party. That's what you got to do. But you can't do it if you're continually, you're continually uh, um, um, issuing uh, uh, these kind of purity tests and deciding that the only people who are really worth their, the label of conservative are people who are willing to, 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 to follow an idiotic strategy. That, that just seems bananas to me. That, that is not a party that should be in power. Well, yeah, the, I mean the defense that the Ted Cruz people will make and um, is that what they do – what they're doing – is and they they won't make this on TV obviously, but they, they what they're doing is that they are moving the political center to the gravity in the discussion about the budget to the right, and so now what you know they're ne- a month ago everyone said that delay delaying Obamacare was unacceptable and impossible, and now that is a mainstream argument um, by pushing. The, the the borders further to the right, they make other right wing positions seem more centrist. That's a fine and interesting talking point. Um, I just don't know that that's truly what Ted Cruz was was up to here. Um, that may be a consolation prize, um, but I don't think that's what you know. I don't so I don't think that was tired the plan. of that. It's not just too too clever. All this clever. We're not. trying to drive a dialogue, and we're creating a continent. It's not just BS. Come on. By the way, of course, it's. I, I think it's BS, and I think it's BS in this in this regard, which is that Ted Ted Cruz and Mike Lee, you know, in July announced that the House must act in this way, or it will be condemned to being called you know rhinos and sellouts. The House of Representatives under John Boehner voted 37 times to overturn Obamacare before Ted Cruz ever set foot in D.C., 37 times to make it clear where the party stood on this matter, 37 times. You know, John Boehner doesn't need lectures from Ted Cruz on efforts to overturn Obamacare. Ted Cruz may have a different strategy. It does not mean that anyone who has a different strategy didn't work. There were a whole slew of things that happened in the 2010 election, uh, in largely as a response to Obamacare, 63 seats were won in the House, right? In 2012, in, the, in, in, a, in a disastrously uh, illogical decision, the Supreme Court upheld its existence by declaring something on page 15 that it said was not a tax then right. said on page 35 that it was a tax and said this is not for us – basically, specifically said this is not for us to do. This needs to be adjudicated in an election. And in an election, the Republican Party, for whatever reason, ended up nominating the worst possible person <laughs> to carry the banner against Obamacare and a whole <laughs> bunch of Republicans who seem to think that talking about rape 
in in odd ways was a really good electoral strategy. So that's so the November 2012 election happened. And then conservatives of whom Jonah and I, we we terrible, you know, have been, you know, have been working in the, you know, in the corridors of conservatism for longer than a lot of the people who call us rhinos have practically been alive. Conservatives say, well, Romney only lost because millions of conservatives stayed home, which is preposterous. Yeah, demonstrably untrue. It is preposterous. Untrue. It's demonstrably untrue. You know, uh, it's you can find one area in, in, in Ohio in which it appears that a lot of conservatives stayed home. It wouldn't have been enough to turn the election result in Ohio the other way. And even if Ohio had been won, you know, Romney still would have lost. So – there are a lot of delusions here, but they are created, in my view, by what I was referring to earlier, the big sort, which is that Republicans now tend to live exclusively among Republicans. Democrats now tend to live exclusively among Democrats. And the politicians who go for their votes and try to go for them are therefore they – are, there is no reason for them to temper their, their ideological pitch – because they need to broaden their base. There is no broadened base. The base is narrow. The bases are narrow in all of these electoral categories. And the same thing will be true if a Republican wins in 2017 and doesn't have, you know, 2016, and doesn't have an enormous majority in the House and Senate. Because Democrats are the same way. Democrats now represent urban areas, you know, almost exclusively, um, they they take up not that much geographically of the, of the of the country, but they're but they're you know they have enormous concentrated power, and they will do exactly to a Republican what you know, to a to Republican what Republicans have been doing to Obama to the extent possible because there is no incentive for them to do anything otherwise. Now, oh, come on. that's Democrats life. Totally respect the office of the president and the will of the people, and they won't do any of that. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Rhino. So. <laughs> well, I, I guess I just uh, I, I'm sort of losing patience with it. It just seems like ah, uh, just seems like a um a, a, a group of people. Just you know, I guess I've had this experience in show business where you're working on a show and it's getting a decent number, but it's not enough, and you can't believe, or or it maybe even a decent number, maybe it is enough, right, to keep your show on, but you can't believe that people all around the country aren't talking about it. You can't believe that uh, you know, surely we are on last night. The people will be talking about this episode. You cannot believe it's just inconceivable to you that you are not popular, that you are not on top of mind of everybody's sort of conversation. And I think it's part of this, this, this problem, so this, this new sort of individual broadcasting kind of ego that we all have that I can tweet and Facebook and millions of people see me and I'm really a celebrity, you know, that kind of weird attitude that's seeped into this – this Republican theory that just because I win in Texas or just because they're t- writing about me in the Weekly Standard or just because I can tweet and have a, a 5,000 followers that I'm somehow participating in this great big national movement. And it's just the scale is just completely out of whack. But there it's a was huge a country. Movement. In 2010, 2009 2010, the Tea Party movement came out of nowhere. It was spontaneous. Yes. It, yes, was, it, was, it was a re- remarkable thing and people are, are – are, you know, sort of um, on its fumes. You know, they're still smelling the no, fumes from this incredible, the- this incredible engine. I don't disagree with you. I just think that the interesting thing that is going on here is, you know, one of the Twitter hashtags that was being peddled by the cruise people la- last week in this was "Don't blink." You know, hold right. firm, don't blink. Right. To what? 
to what? The notion is Democrats don't want the government to shut down. We know Obama wants the government to shut down. Obama wants nothing more than for the government to oh, shut course. down so that he can duplicate. Oh, and this is my other favorite thing, not to, not to rant. So there is this, so he can duplicate <laughs> well, the... Well, somebody who's not ranting, you're doing pretty good. No, but so in 1995, Republicans were charging ahead. Two things happened to, to, to slow their momentum. One was Newt Gingrich complaining that he, you know, was forced to sit in the back on Air Force One. And the second was the government, or three things, the Oklahoma City bombing. Newt Gingrich complaining about Air Force One, and then the government shutdown um, uh, of, of October 1995. Now, because of the October shutdown, which lasted for three and a half weeks, it is largely the case that Bill Clinton got elected because of the October shutdown. Momentum shifted. Republicans caved to him. They all had to bend. They, you know, he, he sort of took the upper hand politically again and sort of charged forward. Now, suddenly this week we are being told magically and mystically by people on on the right that in fact 1990 – the shutdown was great. The shutdown was fantastic. Uh, Republicans uh, gained five seats in the House and two seats in the Senate in 1996 while losing the election – the national election 49 to 40. You know, Clinton won 49 percent. He won 6 percent more than he had won four years earlier. And Bob Dole scored 2 percent more than George Bush had in 1992. And this is held to be the standard by which we're, this is a great political, you know, thing to look back on. And the yeah. reason that this works, I'm, I'm afraid to say, as I keep learning is, you know, there are a great many people who get, who've gotten involved in politics in the last four or five, six years. They're young. You know, they're, they're in their 20s or something. And they don't actually know about that. They don't know about the government shutdown. They, they, you know, they were seven years old. They were eight years old. They don't know about it. It doesn't mean anything to them. Their entire political life has been lived under Obama and, and Bush. And so, you know, somebody spins some malarkey about, about what happened in 1995. They're like, oh, great. Yeah. Whoa. Thanks for telling me that. Every single person in Washington who lived in Washington in 1995 knows yeah. that the government shutdown was a calamity for the Republican Party and the conservative movement. It was a calamity. And yet here we are. So that's my rant. Now, maybe uh, maybe it is important to change, shift topics a little bit and get a tiny, a tad bit lighter by talking about that delightful <laughs> lanyap piece of sorbet, bowl of sorbet known as Breaking Bad. That wait, wait hey, before we do that. <laughs> That insouciant little mm, little, little little dry mm, martini that uh, that uh, that that barrel of fun. Now, uh, wait. Bad. Before we do that, I, I I've been reminded to tell everyone, including um, everyone on this podcast, that on um, October fifteenth, which is a Tuesday, uh, I'll be in New York City. Um, I'm, I start production the next day. And so uh, we're going to have a little Ricochet meetup. So if you're a member of Ricochet, and if you're not, if you're listening to this and you're not a member of Ricochet, become a member. That would be a perfect time to do it. Uh, become a member of Ricochet. We're going to have a, a meetup, uh, and I hope John Podoritz will join us. Uh, and uh, who knows, maybe Johnny will, even will come up from D.C. Um, and if we're really, uh, if we're really organized, maybe we'll even record one of these live if we can. I'm, I'm not oh, saying we can. I'm just, I'm just throwing it out up. there. And we'll have a Ricochet meetup and record one of these. And um, uh, but you got to be a member. So uh, become a member and, if you're not a member. 
perhaps that Ricochet meetup, it may or may not, if, if it involves a podcast, it might or might not be, as this episode of Glob Culture is, sponsored by our friends at Encounter Books. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> this week's featured title is from one of their broadside series, The Cure for Obamacare by Sally Pipes. This broadside looks at the changes that can be made to halt the full implementation of the healthcare law over the next few years, including repealing parts of the act that are unpopular with members of both parties. These parts are the medical device tax, the independent advisory board, the new 3.8% tax on unearned income, just to name a few. Also covered, potential reforms to Medicare and Medicaid, the two major entitlement programs that, if not reformed to ensure sustainability for those who really need them, will be bankrupt by 2024. So please, for your own sake, for the sake of the country, for the sake of your children, for the sake of the Ricochet podcast glob culture, for the sake of Ricochet, go to EncounterBooks.com to get this broadside, The Cure for Obamacare by Sally Pipes, for a special price for listeners of Ricochet. Enter the code RICOCHET. And I want to remind you, because this is named after some, you know, French nonsense term, Ricochet is spelled R-I-C-O-C-H-E-T, at checkout for an additional 15% off all titles. And our thanks to Encounter Books for sponsoring our show. Encounter Books, the great conservative publisher... The great conservative publisher, Roger Kimball, the editor of The yeah. New Criterion and editor of Encounter Books, um, which is you know, a lifeline for, for conservative intellection in the United States, uh, just as rhino. Ricochet is. And I'm a rhino. Rhino. Uh, because – Establishment um, rhino. <laughs> <laughs> That's me, the establishment rhino. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of the funniest things about being called an establishment rhino is – if only I were an establishment rhino, you know, I would be giving TED Talks. Oh, you, I would you'd be, be, oh, you'd be the worst. You would be the the greatest, most uh, – You first of all, you, I think you'd be, you'd be the richest establishment rhino were, were you simply to change. I could. I really, I would be I, – I have been practicing the following. <laughs> uh, Gwen, Mark is absolutely right. It just doesn't. Mark doesn't go far enough. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work for me the way it does for my dear friend. But you know, I'm just saying. I wish if I were an establishment rhino, I wouldn't have had three dollars left in my checking account after I paid the tuition for my three kids at school. That's one of the many things that makes me annoyed that I'm referred to as an establishment rhino. You can trust me. There would be yes, please. This raises my one of my rant issues. Wait, wait, can I, wait, can wait I, Rob has to try my, my rhino. rhino. Yeah. Okay, go. Look, they have a problem with their base. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend, a French friend, who's a, an actor in France, and he said he does his imitation. They have these these chat shows in France, and we were making jokes about them. He goes, "Oh, you know, in France, it's the same thing. It's like you 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 put your hands out like you're trying to you're, you're catching a a a, 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 ba- a basketball, and you say, you know, we say, look, um, and, and they say in France on those chat shows, they, they say, écoutez, which is slightly ruder, means just listen, you know, écoutez. I mean, listen, <laughs> and it's the same idea. And so I, I, I'll, that's, look, they have a problem with their base. So go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jonah. Jonah, uh, please. No, I, I also got to do one of the, because you have to do, you know, the, before trolling became this omnibus term, concern troll actually meant pretending to care about your enemies in a way to criticize them, right? And 
you know, and about half the columnists on the Washington Post op-ed page. That's what they do. If Republican, you know, I want Republicans to succeed because I want this to be a healthy two-party system, and that's why they have to embrace socialized medicine, right? <laughs> yeah. Or I just, yeah. I, I want a healthy democracy. The Democrats are a better party when we have a lively and generous debate. And so, if the Republicans could just shed their racism, this country would be so much better off, right? Right. right. This was this was Sam Tannenhaus's argument in one of his books about. Uh, about the death, the of, the, death, the death of, of conservatism, conservatism. right? Yeah. Where he says Bill Buckley's mission, what he considered, he said Bill Buckley's idea of the purpose of conservatism was to make liberalism better. It's so and, <laughs> which is, you know, yeah, I, I, remember him, I remember him talking about that late into the night. How can we make? <laughs> and the high watermark of conservatism for for Sam Tannenhaus was uh, I believe he described it as what the late the mid 60s to the early 70s which was precisely <laughs> conservatism's <laughs> weakest and most ineffectual right. moment in american politics now, but it was really, really interesting really no, that's good like, rhino like, yeah so a really good uh, rhino at this moment says things like it gives me no joy that's right to yeah. point out the dog whistles mm-hmm. that my party utters on racial matters gives me no joy. Yeah, or or the 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 the, the Schmidtian uh, bit about you know, look, I'm a lifelong Republican. I you know I I, I want to be I want to get back to the party of Goldwater, back you know, and so therefore I, I'm just arguing for a sane party. That's all we need is yeah. the sane. I want to get back to the the party of Goldwater. You know the party. Of gun control and you know uh, w- free choice for women and yeah, uh, yeah. lost in a landslide and, and and handed over. Uh, no, a- but that's the, the, no, but then if you see like Barry yeah. Goldwater's granddaughter made this documentary for HBO in which Barry Goldwater, <laughs> the man who voted against the Civil Rights Act, is like an environmentalist wacko who you know who was you know uh, pro abortion and uh, you know it was the anyone amazing. Uh, Amazing. Thing. Yeah, Hillary Clinton and James Carville were the main talking heads in that, which you knew know is the first step towards some interesting arguments. Yes. <laughs> right, 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 right. So it does. It does mean. Well, the reason more. they like him so much is because he's dead. Right. right. Well, right. they liked him because he was dead, and also because in his last years, when he was not entirely um, the same uh, <laughs> yeah. person he was, uh, he got confused and said all sorts of things that he had spent his entire life arguing against. Anyway. Uh, I do, however, want to – yes. Yeah, so this is something that, you know, on Saturday night, you know, my my wife and daughter were in Alaska. I was home alone and I somehow got myself – Is that a euphemism? Uh, No, it really wasn't. These are all literal statements. And and I got myself into a massive Twitter onslaught um, by basically bringing up a lot of the stuff we already talked about that, you know – Trying to ex- excommunicate conservatives for a disagreement over tactics is madness, and it became this huge big thing. And all of these people were like, you know, I used to have so much respect for you, but now you've just sold out. Now you're just, you know, you just you've gotten too comfortable, and you don't want to risk it. And it's like they don't. I mean, that it, it, it is astounding to me that that so many people honestly and sincerely believe that financially it's better for me to criticize Ted Cruz than to agree with him. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I, 
it, it is completely counter to the economics of the right. And one of the things I've been trying to say for, you know, we've said it probably 10 times on this podcast and I've written it a bunch of times. One of the big problems, most of the problems the conservative movement has today are problems of success. And one of those problems is that we are now a big enough movement with enough institutions and basically a television network and, and, you know, and, and, and at least parity, if not dominance on the web. Um, you can now live a pretty comfortable life only talking to audiences that agree with you. But the idea that somehow me still being in favor of, of repealing Obamacare, but just thinking that Ted Cruz's strategy for it doesn't make sense, that somehow now I'm going to get to get, give Ted talks, you know, is, is batty. Or that's weird, it, like the, the obsession with like the Georgetown cocktail parties. Oh, the cocktail parties. I get people, people say all this like, enjoy your cocktail parties. Do you know the last, I don't go to cocktail parties. Believe me. Yeah. I don't go to, to cocktail parties. <laughs> I don't up. go yeah. to cocktail parties. And, but like, there's this weird I went, I will. I will tell you that I went to a, uh, a Yom Kippur breakfast at the oh. home of – Enjoy um, a Yom Kippur breakfast. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> – doesn't quite have the same – Oh, <laughs> yeah. How's your Hola Moen going? Yeah, your elite um, anyway. rhino breakfast. <laughs> well, I actually went – to a breakfast at the home of two prominent liberal journalists, and I walked in the door, and if you could have seen the dirty <laughs> if you could have seen the looks on the faces of several people who saw me there, sort of like, what are you doing here? And it's sort of like, well, my daughter goes to school with their daughter. <laughs> so they have to. They had to invite me. I'm really sorry to be here <laughs> spoiling your breakfast. Go eat your whitefish. Wait, your wifeish. I'm the you know. I'm such a rhino that you know. I, you know, I was getting the fish eye for you know half an hour from people who were sitting over you know locks and 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 sturgeon. Anyway, the we'll most important thing. So that's my cocktail party experience. So maybe one of these people who like says enjoy your cocktail party should actually try going to a cocktail party where there are people with whom they disagree and seeing what it's like. Anyway. I do last point. One yes. last point on it, okay? Because the flip side is what what truly bothers me is is the assumption that and I, I look I, I have no brief against Rush Limbaugh. I'm sure he's sincere. No brief against Mark Levin. Um, no brief against Hannity or any of those guys. And they're 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 smarter than the way they're depicted yeah. and all of that kind of stuff and and all of that. I'm not trying to say they're anything derogatory about them. At the same time. The idea that somehow they're courageous and risk-taking by telling their audiences exactly what they want to hear, right? That, that right. somehow telling them this cruise thing will work if we just all stand fast, that that is a sign of their courage. But me criticizing it or John criticizing it or even Rob criticizing it is a sign of cowardice, completely is in, in, in an inversion of reality, right? It I mean, also overlooks all the signs of cowardice that exist for, for uh, at least my behavior. But, but, but <laughs> you know, Rush Limbaugh himself, when asked about what Rush Limbaugh says, when he is asked about a lot of these things, when he is, you know, in, in interviews with, you know, serious people, will say he is an entertainer running a business and, you know, basically he 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 has a feel and a remarkable feel for his market. So as yeah. Jonas said, we are arguing against interest. This does yeah, not it does not help us well, as yeah. marketers on the right to be arguing with people who are screaming and yelling and saying that we're bad news. 
and who might pay we for do me it to because we mean it. Might pay for me to buy or might buy my books, right? I mean, these are the people I'm pissing off right, right. now, and. Right. Yeah, and, and so I want to sell, and I want to sell my magazine too, and stuff like that. But you know, yeah. some things have to be said, and something, and and what's more, the thing that is so enraging about this, and is the most important aspect of it, is that we don't disagree. With, it is with, not with, as with though we're having an argument over whether or not there should be detente or not, or whether or not there should be a no first strike policy, or whether or not Israel should exist, or something like that. Everybody who is having this argument agrees the government is too big. It spends too much. We all agree that Obama's foreign policy is a disaster. We all agree that Obamacare is a disaster and that if it is fully implemented, something fundamental is going to change in the compact between uh, the American citizen and the government. We all agree on that. So the question is some of us have different ideas about how this should be done and what's more, we are being proven correct as this is going along since we're watching this and would be perfectly happy to defund Obamacare were it possible for it to happen. We would be perfectly That's happy to be proven is- wrong. Of course. Right? I, mean, I would love Not to only- find out I'm wrong about this. Love yeah. it. But, you know, we went through this in 2011. Some, a lot of the same things were being said in the debt ceiling down of 2011, where what was said was, we need to fight, 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 right? There was a lot of fighting, 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 fighting. And then it was like, okay, but then what happens if the debt ceiling isn't raised? And what happened when the debt ceiling wasn't raised is that Moody's downgraded the, downgraded the full faith and credit of the United States for the first time in the country's history. And, there was and, a really serious consequence to it. And we look foolish. And we look unserious. That's the, I guess the problem is that this seems yeah. unserious. I mean, you and you, you, no matter what you're doing, you're talking about people's health care. And so looking unserious doing that is not the right way to go about it. It just, isn't, it just doesn't send the right message. You know, hating your, enemy, hating your political rivals and opponents is fine. But, you know, you, there are – it is like saying the laws of gravity are suspended. If you can't get a piece of legislation passed, spending all of your emotional energy – and all of your political capital and all and everything, making a fight that you can't win, if winning means getting done what you say you want to get done, right? This is, of course, the secondary question, which is why is this all happening? Is this all happening because people want to really think they can defund Obamacare? Or is this all a war inside the Republican Party to position Ted Cruz for 2016 and to strengthen the hand of the 501c4 groups which are now increasingly substituting for the structures of the Republican Party to give them you know, the whip hand to frighten politicians into doing what they want and to basically make them the nominating forces for 2016. There are institutional imperatives and prerogatives that are going on here and the political interest of people. And you know, there is a certain amount of disingenuousness here because we all want it to be defunded. It can't be defunded. So the question is why – why are we going to the wall and the mattresses on this? And it's because it helps some people and it hurts others. And, you know, the Senate Conservatives Fund, which is a right. pack that was largely started at the behest of Jim DeMint, who now runs the Heritage Foundation, you know, this morning sent out an email, this morning, this being Thursday morning, uh, September 24th, Tuesday morning, September 24th, sent an email saying that Mitch, Mitch McConnell – uh, committed the ultimate betrayal of conservative principles by saying that he would vote 
differently from what Ted Cruz wanted. The right. ultimate betrayal of conservative principles. You know, Mitch McConnell spent 10 years fighting against campaign, the, you know, campaign finance reform, which has largely been responsible for the disastrous condition of the parties and the strengthening of these you know, outside groups and all that. Mitch McConnell, again, like Mitch McConnell fought, has fought more conservative battles than a lot of these people have ever themselves even entered. And, you know, you can, you can not like him. You can say you don't like how he does things and all of that. But to call him a betrayer of conservative principle, that's just disgusting. It's offensive. It's, it's preposterous. It's forcing a war. You're fighting the war. Supposedly what you're trying to do is fight against Obama. This is not about fighting against Obama. This is about a fight for dominance within the Republican Party. Uh, okay, so having, having, as I said, now I think, you know, the, having ranted and raved and screamed, uh, Jonah as, the, as the, one of the nation's foremost expostulators of the greatness of Breaking Bad, <laughs> as the final episode of Breaking Bad uh, approaches in, in five days' time from the time we are actually taping this, um, how do you feel the, uh, the run-up to the conclusion is going? Um. I I think it's going pretty well. Um, I, I, I'm, I, are we going to do some spoilers <laughs> here or not? And that's my that's why I'm reticent. I think we I, have to. How can you not? I mean, I mean, I mean, I, I think we should go out of our way. Spoilers. Okay, spoilers. Spoilers are coming. Okay. So first of all, I I was a little stunned by how early in this they killed Hank, and. Uh, so here's what here's what I, I I like what's going on. I'm I'm very concerned about what's going to happen to poor Jesse, but um, you know the argument I made in my National Review piece, which is now beyond, out from the firewall, um, is that this is one of the things that makes this really kind of new in television, among many other things in terms of the quality and all that, and sort of really is the television version of a novel. Yeah. Um, is that instead of embracing an anti-hero, right? That's who Tony Soprano was. That's who a lot of guys in The Wire was. We have a hero, a sort of lowercase h hero, a bourgeois family man, decent guy, who goes, as, as the, Vince Gilligan, the creator of the show, calls it, goes from being Mr. Chips to Scarface. So he doesn't start out as an anti-hero. We're introduced to him as a decent man, and he becomes not an anti-hero, but a villain which is a very sort of different thing um, and is, right. is essentially unprecedented in television um, where we have a good man who becomes a bad man. And one of the things I think is sort of fascinating Except for uh, the first Darren E.B. Witch. Is that – what I think is, like, is fascinating about it is how so many – and Ross Douthat had a good post up at the New York Times yesterday about this. Um, I know, which makes me a rhino. Um, that – you know, so many critics are having an incredibly hard time grasping with the fact that that Walter White is a bad guy and that Jesse Pinkman's sort of a bad guy too. And so, one of the things I think they're getting to, and this is where the spoilers are, is that I think the um, the the neo-Nazi guys in the show um, are basically the the symbol. They, they symbolize exactly where Walter White's amoral approach to life takes you. Eventually, you have no morality whatsoever. You have only what Ed Banfield would call a familial tribalism, where basically whatever's Whoa. good for you... 
There's a lot of $5 words. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're you impressed. Have, you, have, you have only what's good for your own family, your own group, and nothing else really matters. And so when you have, like, Todd shooting Jesse's old girlfriend and just saying, hey, you know, this is nothing personal, it was so cruel and so vicious but it is the logical extension of right. where Walt is going when you give up all conventional morality. Well, I, but I, 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 I agree with that. I mean, I, I guess Banfield was a total rhino, but I, I definitely agree with that, that theory. <laughs> but I also think that something else is going on just as, as, in terms of just sheer storytelling genius, right? We now root for Walter to kill those, um, you know, the, 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 the new meth gang. Right. We want him to do that. Um, we also want Walter to die, and what's amazing about this the, the story is that it really I mean it's 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 uh, it, it is monumental in so many ways because we're the world of Breaking Bad is not a world of specific justice, right? I mean we don't necessarily believe the DEA is going to get these guys. We believe the universe, the moral universe, is going to get them. That right. there's something that if you break the laws this badly, not not the legal, not the the laws of nature. If you are a bad person, if you go to the dark side, the the universe, the sort of moral universe, God, whatever you want to call it, you will be punished. And and we're watching this guy's empire that he built, and for two thirds of the building of it, we were with him. Um. Uh, we were watching that fall apart, and there's this, this compelling moment last week, which I thought was really just brilliant and incredibly moving, where he calls his son. And yeah, that was he a says, great, amazing got, moment. I've got money. I've got money for you, and we know that they need money. And we've been really spared seeing just how degraded the family is right now. We don't. We haven't seen any of the any of their. Uh, we haven't seen Skyler working in the as, as a cash, in a grocery store wherever she's working. We haven't seen any. We haven't seen the depths to which they've sunk yet. Um. We, we just was played back to us, which I thought was really kind of very, very smart because we didn't. He didn't want. I thought I don't think they want to make us feel incredibly sympathetic, right? They just want to let, let us hear the news report that the family's in financial trouble. Walt calls his son uh, and says, "I'm going to send you money." And there's this moment where you don't know which way the son's going to go, and the son just says, "Don't. I mean, d- just leave us alone. Die. Why aren't you dead? Die already." So that in the entire universe, there are really only two moral figures. One of them is. Hank, who was now dead, who was a hero, right? Yeah. And the second is the son. And there's this something really powerful about that, the idea that this is not a chain of evil. This is not like uh, you know uh, the, the root causes or anything we, we want to say. This is one guy going to the dark side and his own son recognizing right from wrong. And that, that was really powerful. And also the, you know, that, that then, then, then Walter has this – Epiphany, where he says, "This can't all be for nothing." And when his yeah. son says, "Why well, can't you know?" When he's when his son is not going to take the money, and that's when Walt decides he's essentially going to turn himself in. And the only right. thing that drags him out of that is the same thing that has turned him evil in the first place, which is his monumental ego. And it's when he see when he catches Charlie Rose, yeah. and his old colleagues on Charlie Rose. All of a sudden, that is what it takes. And I gotta to say, bring out a Heisenberg. Charlie Rose, stank it up. Jeez, <laughs> what? I mean, I would have like I, cut. Okay, Charlie. Excuse me. Yeah, excuse for me. Five but, seconds. Uh, Rob, pretend you're a human being. Rob. Yes. I think Charlie runs one of the <laughs> finest talk shows in America. Right it's a show. It's a show that 
agree or disagree really debates the issues in a sober and serious way, unlike some news channels that I could mention. Mention, yeah. There's no <laughs> shouting on it. It's just really kind no of no shouting. There's no shouting. We get to now. I like to. I, really thinks. I'd like to uh, contrast this. Uh, you know, this the moral uh, pageant that you, you are talking about Breaking Bad in this way with the disgraceful conclusion of Dexter, a disgraceful show altogether, as it is a show that uh, literally lionizes um, and has spent seven years uh, lionizing. You know, an act. You know, sort of a serial killer. Um, Not a sort of a serial killer, a serial killer. No, a serial killer, but basically lionizing him and yeah. and turning him into a turning him into a hero in that it was very it seemed clear that it that you know in a in a conventional moral universe where this was going someone was going to have to make him pay for all these crimes that we had watched and Dexter concluded uh this week with him um uh Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Um his uh his beloved uh, sister uh, adopted sister uh, dies of a stroke rather than is able to sort of either finish him off or report him to the authorities. He hands off his son to another serial killer to go live in Argentina with because she'll protect him. And then he stages his own death and is shows up, you know, at the end uh, as a lumberjack in Oregon, clearly so that he can be on a new show and commit serial killing in another setting. So basically in for seven years. Right. And so, well, so then, well wait for, I kind of like that idea. That idea yeah. <laughs> so basically for, so basically the show Dexter, which is a show that, you know, that turns serial killing into, you know, into a sort of romantic light subject of light romantic comedy ends up with Dexter not getting punished. Uh, the, the moral universe doing absolutely nothing to, and you know, and and uh, having corrupted his own sister, she then dies of a stroke, and but nobody it's, gets it's, him. And that, yeah, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I watched the first season of that, and I, I sort of enjoyed it. You know, really, but it, it, the, I just couldn't get past the, the the fundamental problem with it, which is that if you are a serial killer, you can you by definition cannot attach emotionally. That's why you're a serial killer. That's what it is. Psychopath is somebody who cannot attach emotionally, right? And so, and every and every time, and every episode, we had we had Dexter attaching emotionally. Like, well, you know, he, oh, I'm not really a serial killer. I'm just I'm channeling my my murderous instincts into some kind of vigilante justice. But yeah, that, that, then you ain't a serial killer. I'm sorry, you you can't do right. that. You, I mean, I I like my serial killers to be serial. I like them to be psychopaths. I don't want them to be conflicted or to be trying to control themselves because they can't. So right. Well, the, the thing well, I, I didn't like because it was it was it was it was too moral, not because it was amoral or a, or unmoral, just it was too moral. Well, you know, I I think that Dexter was a very strange show, which I you know sometimes I'd go a couple of years without watching it, and then I had some trips and I would watch on my iPad or whatever, and I watched the finale, and um, never I don't think in the history of television or movies has a show spent as much time talking about moral codes. Without actually having one itself. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's it exactly is, it. Except it for the first bizarre. season. Oh. <laughs> the seventh you know, season. That was to be the seventh season of Bewitched, which I think really focused in on the moral dilemmas. And well, I, I, really, I, really, I don't seconds. appreciate you making fun <laughs> just of Just for this 10 sort of seconds. There, is some, there was something really peculiar about a show. Like I, I, I know we're talking about uh, uh, Dexter, but I just want to mention Bewitched for one second. <laughs> that there was something peculiar about that show in that they, it posited that if you have these special powers, 
you it is immoral or wrong for you to use them. And so she renounced her special powers for this kind of like incredibly, you know, loser husband who's got to be the most the most unsympathetic character in the history of television, more unsympathetic than Dexter himself is the guy married to Elizabeth <laughs> Montgomery and she's got magic powers and his one demand of her is don't use them. That's just like what a jerk. He's such a Yeah, jerk. well because his because his male because his male ego is so fragile that he can't deal with the fact that she's more powerful than he is. Whatever. And she like- needs to protect <laughs> his fragile male ego from her power. That's that's actually what the what what the show is about. Also, nose will be up one of them new uh Mercedes. Nose will right. be up uh, a porterhouse. Yeah. Guys, I, I know we're running short on time here, but um, from my own from my own Twitter feed the other night, um, yes. I know there are a substantial number of people who want us to say something about the Emmys. Oh, really? uh, okay, okay, very quickly about the Emmys, I would be happy to to, to say to say. I can summarize them. I was not nominated. There, I oh, can summarize know. them as follows: Rob was not nominated. Nothing more damning than that can be said, but. <laughs> I will say that the treatment of Toby Monteith versus <laughs> Corey, Jack Klugman, Corey, Corey, Corey whatever. Corey Monteith. I mean, like, I'm sorry the guy died. It's, it's a sad story. But his contribution to the history of television is basically slightly larger than a thimble of a speed bump compared to the monumentalness of Jack Klugman. Of By the and way, Jack not Klug- just – not just Jack Klugman, but you know Larry Hagman was also somebody who was blipped over, and Larry Hagman is somebody yeah. who, who was arguably in his day in the late late seventies was the biggest star television had ever seen. Yeah, he yeah. was the star of 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 the of the program that solely due to him had the largest rating in the history yeah. of television, episodic rate until the Mash finale. But no show, you know, the the episode in which Jr. was shot, and then and then we found out who who shot Jr. had a hundred million people watching it. Well, that's a movement, by the way. That's what that, the, is, that's a movement. A <laughs> that movement. is a movement. That is a movement. That's not a million tweets. That's not oh look, the Twitter feed's blowing up. Oh my God, my Facebook newsfeed. That hundred million people is freaking movement you that you elect a president with 100 million people oh yeah you elect you could you know that's two presidents like, uh, that's what vladimir putin gets when he when <laughs> that's he that's right and there are only 75 million voters that's right um and you know we're we i believe sadly have come to the end of this uh, of this ricochet podcast without the ability to talk about whether or not we like the uh ios 7 uh new interface which i do and you can i do say too you don't. Uh, and uh, whether or not we agree with Louis C.K. That, uh, that, that, that children shouldn't have smartphones, I do agree with that um, because it freaks me out to see them have them. But, you know, my kids are very little and we'll see what happens when they start demanding them. Um, Let me guess. But it is a they hilarious – it is a hilarious rant if you haven't watched his, his rant about uh, smartphones and people on smartphones and Facebook. The Facebook part in particular is – just screamingly funny, um, and, it, and and among the many tragedies, of the, the Emmys, Emmys, yeah, yeah, is that Louis C.K. was nominated for nine Emmys, all of which he deserved and none of which he won. Whereas, yeah, I, I don't Jeff, understand that. Yeah. Jeff Daniels won over Brian Cranston and I, various crazy. other people for the newsroom. Something so unexpected that he did something that has never happened to my knowledge on any award show ever, which is that he came up to stage chewing gum. <laughs> and was chewing gum when he accepted his his Emmy, which nice. is probably as much as an Emmy is worth. 
Um, anyway, so and that's why I don't really care that Rob was or was not nominated because if Rob would 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 have won on the same night as Jeff Goldwyn wins for playing Keith Olbermann, um, that really wouldn't have canceled it out in my view. And so, it is a poison chalice. It's a poison chalice. Take this cup from your <laughs> lips, Rob. That's what I say. I haven't, I haven't won the Pulitzer either. You so. have not, no. But you, you though, you I, though, though, you know, Kathleen Parker, Kathleen Parker, Rhino. She went Rhino on Sarah Palin and yeah. won a Pulitzer. So Jonah, what are we doing wrong? Rhino, Rhino, Rhino. <laughs> Enough of this. It's only the Republican Party's stuff. legacy of racism that makes you say that. That's right. I think we should stop calling this glop culture and call it rhino culture. That's that that may be necessary uh, after the hijinks of this week. It might be. We might have to. We might we simply might. have to. So, uh, gentlemen, uh, perhaps we will be convening uh, in New York uh, on October fifteenth for the Ricochet meetup. Jonah, do you have anything to peddle? Um, I do. As I mentioned the last time that I was going to be in Minnesota, I now have the details. I will be at St. Thomas University in St. Paul, Minnesota on Monday evening, uh, September 30th. And on Tuesday evening, I'll be at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis at the Science Teaching and Student Services Building, whatever that is. Um, And then on October 3, I believe it is, I will be at Wilkes University in Pennsylvania, and you can go to their website to check it out. And, and Rob, as we know, will be in New York on the 15th of October. I will be there. Shape Meet Up. And uh, on October 7th, uh, Commentary Magazine, the publication that I, that I edit, uh, will be hosting its fourth annual roast. Uh, the roastee oh, really? is Vice President Dick Cheney. Holy if moly. You- that's right. And uh, uh, I can't wait to hear what Jeff Ross uh, and uh, Lisa Lampanelli say about him. Uh, what I'm funny things can you say about Dick Cheney? <laughs> <laughs> we, have, we, have, we have conservative funniness going on with such uh, puckish wits as uh, Donald Rumsfeld, Michael Mukasey, and Scooter Libby and others. Um, if you have – if you uh, – tickets are $500 for a table for dinner. If you are interested, you can email – S. Roberts at commentarymagazine.com. We have some seats left. Um, that's in New York on October 7th. And, uh, Scooter Libby is going to be Scooter, Scooter Libby. Libby will be roasting Dick Cheney. As will former Attorney General Michael Mukasey and as will his own daughter Liz. Well, I'm and as will I. I. And, yeah. and for, because this is a, an internet literate audience – Sketches and films written by Iowa Hawk. So, you all know. If you don't know who Iowa Hawk is, look him up. I, uh, I just want to hear. I want to hear Scooter Libby's you know, joke. Well, hey, come th- on th- in. Th- buy a table. That, th- buy a table. Win an Emmy. Thanks for that pardon you promised me. He uh, Cheney is not the uh, Cheney is not the source of him not getting a pardon. Anyway, no, whatever. I just like shall we? <laughs> Shall, shall, we, shall, we, uh, shall we conclude by, by, by pointing out that uh, uh, sometime this weekend uh, the government may shut down around the time that uh, there will be some kind of chemical gas attack on Albuquerque on Breaking Bad? Yes. Yes. Okay. So which, which – uh, you know, and there will be, there'll be much to discuss – uh, on Twitter, uh, as Jonah and I uh, 
and and perhaps Rob uh, have to systematically block thousands of people who start calling us rhinos after this uh, after this I, podcast. I've been called so much worse. <laughs> really? Like what? Well, like that. <laughs> but but I, I I'm out. I'm an out rhino, so you you can't hurt me. I don't even know what a rhino is, but anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's right. Okay, this this this. this. This tail end conversation has a true half life, guys. Okay, <laughs> so gentlemen, let us get back. Let us get back to work. Uh, you know, going to cocktail parties and 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 destroying the Republican Party from within and pre- preventing true conservatism from taking its place among the uh, the lights of the nations. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, join us next time on Glop Culture, and we will be seeing you then. See you soon. Break. Would you think if I sang out a tune, would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song and I'll try not to sing out of key. Oh, I get by with a little help from my friend. Mm, I get high with a little help from my friend. Mm, gonna try with a little help from my friend. Ricochet. Join the conversation. What do I do when I love?